turn in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah 42. We're going to take a break from Acts. Uh, I've actually uh, had a group of these sermons out of Isaiah prepared or at least did some personal study in them. Usually the way I study is in sermon prep. And even though I don't preach anymore, that's the way I study the Bible and uh, came across a group of sermons here in Isaiah, which are often used as Advent sermons in preparation for Christmas time. And, uh, and so Isaiah 42 in the first nine verses is one of those. If you have, don't have uh, your personal Bible or looking at a pew Bible, it's, uh, page 349 in, uh, in the pew Bible. This introduces somebody Isaiah does years before Christ came, and he introduces him in the context of titles. Uh, there's actually four of these uh, of uh, these uh, uh, Advent sermons or uh, uh, texts that Isaiah uses to introduce this person who was to come. And uh, they are introduced in, the, in uh, titles like A Servant of the Lord. Secondly is A Healing King. And another one is A Suffering King and also A Sovereign Lord. And these are strange terms to Israel. And the application of, of this uh, text that we're going to look at, and just to give you the bigger picture today and... Uh, the worship team picked out a lot of good songs, but in that last song, we sang about the goodness of the Lord. And if you're here today, and maybe what you have gone on in your life, it's hard for you to sing about the goodness of the Lord. This psalm here, or this song that Isaiah is writing, this is for you here today as we unfold this here this morning. Last week, when Gibson introduced the sermon regarding uh, Paul and talked about this is last week's sermon was a low moment in the life of Paul. It was a time when he didn't do good and it seemed like the wave of abuse and persecution that he was experiencing, even the slap in the face by the high priest there in the text that we look at, all, all of that was just beginning to take a toll on his emotional well-being. And uh, Gibson kind of set the sermon up that kind of a way. And uh, those are not new experiences that are recorded in the Bible. In fact, just to name a few, um, Elijah, the prophet, had this great worship experience and demonstration of of God's goodness and greatness on Mount Carmel. And just like that, the queen, Jezebel, heard about it and made a threat, and he everything just collapses, and he takes off and hides. And that's another whole story and another whole sermon. Another one is in 1 Samuel, when David... And his, in, the early, in his early life, his job was to expand and secure the borders of Israel. And so he had a band of soldiers that was working with him, and they were out fighting little battles, and they had this group of people, the Amalekites, which were a thorn in Israel's side, 
and they were just creating a bunch of political and social mischief. And anyway, as they had come back to their families, the Amalekites had been there before, had burned their cities, had taken their wives and their children, kidnapped, and, uh, and it says there in the text in 1 Samuel 30 that David's guys, who had been very loyal, all of a sudden became very bitter towards him, and there was talk of stoning him. And there's this incredible phrase there in 1 Samuel 30, but David found strength in the Lord his God. It's a powerful, powerful statement. You ought to underline that in your Bible or make a motto, hang it on your car mirror or whatever to remind you of times that you, we go through that life becomes difficult. And it's difficult to find the goodness of the Lord. And these experiences and the wide scope of them, and I'll talk more about that later, the, these experiences that come into our lives the end to our lives either make us better or they make us bitter, one of the two. And uh, the point is, if we do not have deep anchors, faith anchors, in the good times of our life and in the non-anxious times of our life, we will never be able to reach for a, reach for a solid footing when these difficult times comes. So what happens What happens when a whole culture of people experience this negativity? And, uh, and, and it goes for years on end, even generations. That's what we have here in Isaiah 42. We are, we are, uh, and and anyway, there, there's a, uh, there's four of these. Uh, one of them is here in, in uh, Isaiah uh, 42. There's also another one in 49. Uh, last week, Gibson actually ended his sermon quoting some verses out of Isaiah 49. There's also another one in Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 11, and then also in chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah. But here we're introducing the, the people of Israel who are presently in captivity. They're in Babylon at the time. And through the prophetic voice of Isaiah... We are hearing the introduction of this servant of the Lord, and and uh, in this case, a servant king, who was to come and do a new thing among them. They have been living there for close to seventy years. There's approximately three or four generations that has rolled up, and somehow the promises of Genesis twelve to Abraham, their faith father, just seem to be far far away from them. And there they are, they're living in a foreign land, and these messages of Isaiah come for the purpose of giving them hope in these difficult times. So Israel was culturally and politically beginning to see some new things, some new things that had happened. And and, and times were changing a little bit, and part of that is because in the previous chapter, in chapter 41 of Isaiah, we're introduced to Cyrus the Great, the king from Persia, who had come down and invaded Babylon. And one of the things that he brought, he just brought a change in disposition, and he started to allow 
the Jews to return back to Jerusalem. And this is beginning to unfold in a new kind of way and to give them some hope. And, and, and times began to change in the midst of this long time of, of being separated uh, from their homeland and whatnot. As I was studying this and digging around, I came across something that in 1948, right at the time when Israel became a nation, they were at war for two years after that to, to nail down their occupation of the land, and uh, which ended in a ceasefire. President Truman at the time, who on the onset was a very reluctant supporter of Jewish people having a homeland. He didn't want to hear nothing about it. And there was this conversation and this movement going on in the world at that time. And President Truman didn't want to have nothing to do with that. And finally, a friend who in a deceptive way scheduled an appointment at the White House for him and made an emotional appeal to him. And uh, Truman was persuaded to change change his mind. Anyway, Israel became a nation. They had finished their war there, and some leaders of Israel came over here to Washington, D.C. to reward President Truman with a gift. And they gave him a scroll of the Torah. And Truman was there, and uh, I saw a YouTube of this, and he was just kind of caught off guard. And then he said these words, I have become Cyrus to you folks. And he knew the Old Testament story and brought it there for that moment. It's just kind of a side story in regards to what had happened here in Isaiah 42 when they're living as captivity, in captivity in Babylon and Cyrus becomes from Persia, takes over Babylon and creates this change that is going on, uh, in the, uh, and 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 their and and allows them to go back to their land, but remember, before they go, making their way back, they're in exile. They're captives of a foreign power in Babylon, and due to generations of unfaithfulness, God has allowed Babylon to come, as He threatened them and promised them would happen if they would be unfaithful to overtake them. And in Psalms 37, we hear these words, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Babylon, or when we remembered Zion, excuse me. There on the populars we hung our harps, for our captors were asking us for songs, and our tormentors were demanding songs of joy from us. And they said, Sing us one of your songs of Zion. We heard that you're good singers. Let's... Sing one of your songs that, that you sang back in Zion. And they said these words, How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? And, and that's their emotional process going on, their persona at that particular time. We hear these words from Jeremiah the prophet. There was a false prophet among them by the name of Hananiah who said, Two years, this will all be over. In two years, we'll all be heading back there. But Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 29 says, No, no, we're going to be here for a while. Settle down. Build houses. 
plant gardens, eat the produce that those gardens produce, marry uh, and have children, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they have children. Increase in number. Seek the peace of the city that you live in. Be a good citizen, he's saying. Pray for that city. If it prospers, you too will prosper. And then Jeremiah makes this mandate, I will come. It's a promise God makes. I will come for you and fulfill my gracious promise. That's the promise in Genesis 12, or in Genesis 12 that he gave to Abraham. To bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And so I want you to feel this sense of loss that the Israeli people, the, the Jewish people were feeling as they were carried off and living for three to four generations for actually a period of 70 years in, uh, in Babylon. Just a word about culture. Uh, in 2014, I made my trip to Israel, and uh, one of the places that I just enjoyed was the old city of Jerusalem, uh, literally hundreds and hundreds of years old. I just enjoyed being in there, the narrow streets that at that time were made for horses and chariots. There were carts, there were merchants there. I have this graphic memory of a baker who had one of these big round flat baskets on his head that was filled with loaves of bread that had just been baked. And he was just walking along and people were coming along and picking off their bread and paying him and, uh, and uh, I, I have a dream to go back there and just spend a week at some Airbnb nearby and just go every day and just sit there in the old city. There in the last day before we came home, we actually went on one of the gates, went up the stairway up on top of the wall, and we walked about three different gates around the city and just were able to look over the whole city and uh, and and just to, to be able to appreciate that culture Give me, gave me a window into how the Jews were connected to their own culture. And the reality is we have a culture. We have a culture here. Just two weeks ago, I heard a running story on KYW News that there was a movement to take Billy Penn down in Center City, to take his statue down and put something else up there. And there was so much resistance from the city and the surrounding people here in the counties about that, that they pulled the... Uh, pulled it off their agenda. But we have cheesesteaks, we have soft pretzels, we have Amoroso rolls here, we have Luciano breads, we have the Phillies, we have the Eagles, we have Christmas shows at Macy's, which formerly was John Wanamaker's, if you're old enough to remember that word. And God forbid if somebody would take Scrapple off of our breakfast table in the morning. But this is all culture. These are the things that we enjoy. And in the same way that we're attached to these things, Israel was attached to their culture in that day. And God had allowed the Babylonians to come in and to haul them off as captives. And so they're living there. And so these words, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept when we remembered Zion. They had been there for years in a foreign land that was strange and foreign images and architecture that they didn't, that, that was unfamiliar to them. They were there for three to four generations and they were hopeless 
in light of the promises that God had given to them back in Genesis 12. And stories from the past that they would listen to from their parents and grandparents were all dim memories and are far shadows of God's promise that he had made to Abraham in the past. So this is, this is all the context of this particular passage. So let me read these words as we get into. Oftentimes when you read Old Testament prophets, it's hard to get a feel of where the history is. And so I've tried to outline some of that for you. So I'll read the first nine verses. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. That should sound familiar to us. We, we hear that over and over about the spirit that is resting on this person who was to come. And he will bring justice to the nation. And here's how he's going to do it. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. That's a hint on how this is going to happen. They're used to hearing kings coming out and saying, Hear ye, hear ye, or hear heralds from a king coming out and announcing the agenda. That's not how it's going to happen in this particular case. And then we see these words, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice, He will not falter or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives its breath to its people and life to those who walk on it, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep... Notice how much God is going to do and initiate here. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, a light to the Gentiles. Open the eyes of the blind and free the captives of the prison. That should sound familiar to us. Those are words that Jesus preached in the hometown synagogue in Nazareth, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I will announce them to you. Announcing, remember the visits of the nation, the angels coming to Mary and coming to uh, the parents of John the Baptist and all of this announcing that comes. God has already promised that back here in the New Testament. But first, first we have the words of identity. That's a key word here I want to use here as we're trying to identify who this person is who is to come. And he's identified as a servant. And God is speaking in the first person to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. This is an echo of Psalms 2, which was very familiar to the Israeli people, which 
in that place and in that setting applied to King David. David was this image that was there and this great king that was there. But it was also echoed down through the generations to apply to Jesus Christ as the great son of David, God's anointed. In Psalms, Psalms 2, which is frequently quoted in the New Testament, this phrasing of identity in verse 2, the anointed one in Hebrews actually means in Hebrew, the Messiah. In Psalms 2, 6, I have established my king on Zion, my holy hill. You are my son, the psalmist says here. That should be familiar in Matthew 3, in 16 and 17, uh, when Jesus got baptized. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he got up from the water, and at that moment, the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and, and uh, uh, lighting on him, and, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my Son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. These are all confirmation moments and words confirming the identity of who this person is, this servant-suffering king that was to come. Secondly, what is this servant going to do, and how is he going to do it? It says that he will bring justice to the nation, and he will not cry out into the streets. That's an interesting characteristic there, just in one sentence. And this is how kings exercised their power, promoted their agenda by announcing it in the streets. Either they themselves or they would have heralds that would go out and announce their agenda uh, to people like, hear ye, hear ye. Just last year we saw this sto- uh, the uh, uh, unfolding of King Charles over in England and just a whole week of celebration and announcing and fanfare and all of that to promote his time as the new king after the queen had died uh, in England. Nothing like that is going on here when this king emerges. He comes in a quiet way in the stable of Bethlehem, born in a quiet way, and uh, it, it, it is a totally different kind of way. We hear in the text that he's going to bring justice. And in many of the Christmas carols that we just sang here a couple weeks ago, we had that phrase about justice coming and peace on earth and those kinds of things. What is justice? There are two kinds of justice. First is punitive justice, which is some sort of a punishment with various levels of consequences that hopefully is going to change our behavior in our culture today, and also to satisfy the offended party. But in our culture today, we have fines, we have sanctions, and ultimately we have prisons that we put people in and through those kinds of experiences in order to change their behavior in different types of ways. And there are forms of punishment that hopefully will yield change in our life. But that's not what we're talking about here. Here we have a different kind of justice. We're having what is called restorative justice. He's going to put things right that are, that are wrong. Things that are out of whack, or as Matt Chandler would say, 
are all busted up in our world in which we live. And we see that today more than ever. And uh, where things need to be reconciled, where things need to be restored, we need to, that where things need to put, be put back the way they were. And the point is, there's a longing. There's a longing within every one of us for Eden. A longing to put things the way they were way they were created to be and that's why we so desperately we need reconciliation we need restoration and we need redemption but let's see how that's going to be done it says here he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street not cry out means that he's he will not drown out other voices that are going on we have a phrase in the Scripture about the still, small voice that comes and speaks to our conscience. That's how the Spirit of God works. That's how Jesus works through His words, through His Spirit, into our hearts. And into the streets, I mean, it's not going to be particularly a public voice, meaning that He doesn't seek to control the public discourse of a culture. He doesn't seek to become a public, competitive political voice as a king or as a governor would in any given any given culture right now we here in america we're in the middle of our budding political uh, uh, political and we're hearing all kinds of voices every day every hour it seems on the news of new political agendas Jesus's agenda was not in that kind of way. It was a personal agenda that worked in human hearts and small groups of people and through miracles in the lives of people he touched. All of this introduces us to the next characteristic of this servant king, saying that he was a healing king. A bruised reed, it says, he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This verse was, has been recently quoted right here in our church a number of times. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've heard this verse quote, quoted in a way to give people encouragement, to give people hope in the situations that they were living in. But we also have this word introduced to us, this word bruised. A bruised reed he will not break. This is actually a poor word in English to describe in the text what is going on here. But the meaning here is a broken reed. Or another meaning would be a crushed reed. Something that is being crushed. Something that is extremely fragile where the organic life to the seed head of the reed is barely hanging on by a microscopic thread. On my scooter, I drive up here above the ridge road. I don't even know the name of the road. I drive on it, and I come around a nest turn, and there's a whole group of these tall reeds. If we wouldn't have had a snowstorm, I would have run up there and snipped a few of them off. But if you look at them closely, there's a big head of seeds that grows on the top of this in the summer. It's kind of like a flower, but it's a long, thin stem. And inside there is microscopic, uh, you might call them veins, where the nutrition comes up and feeds that head. And if you would just take it and break that, 
It just ruins, ruins the reed. And that's the fragile state that is pictured here in this text here. And here the prophet Isaiah is describing a kind of people. This servant king is coming to reach bruised people. People who through the life, through the experience of life, has bruised them in a way and cut the life off to their very souls. What we see here is this servant king is about suffering people. Wounded people. Downcast people. People who are economically and culturally and spiritually oppressed. People who through life experiences have no control or very little control over their present state of life. Or, additionally to that, a different kind of suffering in that people experience the consequences of their own sinfulness also leads to a kind of brokenness and a kind of woundedness and a kind of downcastness that people find their life, uh, uh, find, find themselves living in and that has brought them to a fragile state. When we think of bruises, we think of getting bumped or pinched or uh, some small or little thing that can happen to us. But what we're talking about here is a big contusion, is the medical term in, in in what we call them. But in this imagery, the text is much more severe. The reed is fragile to begin with, And then, in addition to that, in verse 3, Isaiah adds the imagery of a smoldering wick that has just a little, tiny, burning flame. Maybe just a wick ember here. A very slight glow, a very low burn that just the slightest breeze or wind will just snuff it out. People's lives are like that. They're severely bruised where the light and life of their soul is ready to be snuffed out and blown out. Maybe you're here today and you're bruised and banged up with life. Maybe you're in a season of life where the troubles and experiences and consequences of life have bruised you to the point that you're very fragile. Maybe you have said these words, I can't go on. I can't do another day. I can't do another week. I can't do another year. Are you like a smoldering candle, almost ready to be snuffed out? This prophetic servant king that is announced in this chapter here today and in the other chapters associated with this announcement This is for you. Maybe you're here today and you've experienced and life experience is not what you dreamed it to be. Life hasn't worked out the way you had hoped. Maybe your career as what you had planned and dreamed hasn't worked out. And getting up and going to work day in and day out is a dread to you. Maybe you're Maybe COVID and the culture of it that came in and controlled our culture, which seems today to be a distant past, has severely disrupted your life and thrown you a curve, and you still haven't recovered from all the chaos surrounding it. 
Maybe in life you've experienced the death of a parent or spouse, and the early death of a parent or spouse that has snatched away your dreams and expectations you had for life. Maybe your job and career, maybe you've had job or career disruptions, employment issues that are not your fault. Maybe your marriage isn't working. Maybe the ugly D word keeps lurking around the corner. Maybe there's been parent-child disruptions. Maybe your grandparents, maybe your grandkids are a mess and drugs and alcohol and other kinds of addictions. Maybe you've needed to raise your grandkids and you weren't planning on that. Maybe you've been close to a struggle of life-controlling addictions, sicknesses, illnesses. Maybe a handicapped or the C word or a disruptive accident has consumed your life and your time and attention and has led to a lifetime or a long season of discouragement. All these kinds of experiences and realities and more can make us feel like our life candle is smoldering and it's ready to be snuffed out. Psalms 39, 42, and 88 are three psalms where the psalmist writes in graphic details, and I'd rather than take the time to read those, I just picked out a few phrases from them. In Psalms 42, the psalmist says, My tears have been my food all day long. In other words, he's crying constantly. My soul is downcast within me. Why have you forgotten me, God? Those are the things that he is praying for. And then on top of it, his friends and foes ask him, Where's your God? We thought you were a Christian. We thought you followed God. Look at your life. It's a mess. All of those implications are there in Psalms 42. Psalms 88 is another one. Oh Lord, I cry out before you. Again, a statement of unanswered prayers. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry, for my soul is filled with trouble. And my life draws near to the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit, or means grave. I am like a man or a woman without strength. I am set apart with the dead. Who will remember, who you remember no more, who are cut off from your care? Why, O God, do you reject me and hide your face from me? And the psalm ends, Darkness is my closest friend. Those are, those are difficult words. This is the, psalm 88 is the only psalm that ends on a negative note like that. All the other psalms, the writers seem to find their way that somehow that in the midst of their troubles, God is good. Psalms 88 is the only one that ends in this dismal way. That darkness is my closest friend. This guy's in bad shape. He's like a smoldering wick that is ready to be snuffed out. But back to our text in Isaiah 42, the overall emotional culture of Israel is that they are emotionally discouraged, they are despondent, and they're feeling hopeless. They've been there now for 70 years. And the promise of God to Abraham, their father, seemed to be in a very distant past. But here... 
Isaiah is introducing them to an event, something new. This servant king, this healing king, is going to come and to bring justice. Not punitive justice, but restorative justice. He's going to make things right. And he's not going to do it by crying out into the streets with a civil political power agenda, but rather he's going to come and he's going to work within the human spirit, bringing healing to their souls. And in our present day and context, he will do that here for us today. How's he going to do that? That's the question. How's he going to do that? It's all hooked to these words, bruising and crushing. These are words and a variation of them is a chain all the way through the biblical story. And they begin in Genesis 3. Back in Genesis 3, where God is cleaning up the sin mess that occurred there in the Garden of Eden, relating to what we know and what we call the fall, we hear these words to Satan. I will put enmity. God is saying here to Satan, I will put enmity. That's opposition and hostility between you, Satan, and the woman between your offspring and hers. And here we have, here we have this announcement of a titanic struggle with God and the evil one and a struggle that's going to play out in the hearts and in the lives and the history of men and women and boys and girls. Here we have the promise though. This is the first evangelical verse in the Bible. And this has been referred to here uh, here off of this pulpit here a number of times. The Evangelion. The good news that was actually preached to Satan there. And notice, we need to get the pronouns straight here as we go this. But he, someone, which is Jesus, is going to come and crush your, Satan's head, and you, Satan, when this happens... You're going to strike his heel. And, and this is all part of this titanic struggle with God and the evil one that is being played out in the hearts of humanity, climaxing in Jesus' death on the cross and in the final defeat of Satan. In 1 John 3, 8, we have these words, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Just a simple phrase there that's tacked on to the bottom of verse seven, uh, the verse 8 in 1 John 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In another one of the servant songs in Isaiah 53, we have these words. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace. Here we have this great substitution of, of, of punishment given to God for us on our behalf. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. 
And the punishment that brought as us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is substitution just screaming out through all those words. And on top of this, we have Jesus' words from the cross who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Total abandonment by God, His heavenly Father. He was bruised. He was crushed and abandoned that we might have life. He knows what we're going through. And if you linked up to one of those many examples that I shared here a few minutes ago that people live with throughout their life, He knows what you're going through. And you can place your faith in the one who has been there. Look at the next verse in Isaiah 42, verse 5. We have more words of identity. That's where God, that's what God says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread, this is all words describing God and His vastness as Creator. Heavens to stretch them out and spread out the earth, and that all who comes of it, who give, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you. I, the Lord, will take care of your hand. Notice what God is going to take the initiative to do. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant people, a light for the Gentiles, and open the eyes for the blind, and free the captives in prison, and release those in dungeons who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. This is my name. See, the former things have taken place. A new thing, I declare. Before they spring into being, I will announce them to you. See, All who put their faith in His punitive justice get restorative justice. Making peace with God. That's good news. That's the good news of the Gospel. Do you need something new in your life today? Has life bruised you and made you feel like a smoldering wick ready to be snuffed out by the circumstances around and going on in your life? If you're a Christian believer here today, my encouragement is renew your faith and place your weight, the weight of your struggle on Him. He wants to carry you. If you're in a non-anxious time, maybe you don't have these things going on in your life right now, now's the time to deepen your faith and in your trust in Him so that when these things come, you will have anchors to hold you. If you're not a believer, and you're swimming in deep emotional stuff here today, and you feel hopeless, accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today, and receive forgiveness of sins first and foremost. And yet, the former things have taken place. Those things have happened in your life. But God has new things for you. By accepting Jesus Christ, His Son, He wants a relationship with you. He wants to be present in your stuff and carry you all the way through to eternity. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we give you thanks for something new. We thank you for this message of something new that you're offering here through the prophet Isaiah to Israel. And we thank you that that announcement continues down through the generations and through the centuries. And it comes to us today. We thank you that you have not forgotten us. And even when the cares of this life have bruised us and the wick of our souls is ready to be blown out, we thank you that you are there. We thank you for the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that our names are written in the palms of your hands. And in, it's in your death and resurrection that we place our hope and we can live confidently in that relationship. We admit and acknowledge that maybe some of the struggles that we are in do not go away, but yet you are there with us and are in relationship with us and that you will carry us and that ultimately we can place our hope in an eternity that is free from all of these things. We thank you for your great love for us, and we give praise to you for all that you've done and all that you've provided. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.